Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Our passage this morning is verses 21 through 26 in Romans chapter 3. Before we read this, I want you to uh, imagine a scenario. Imagine you're in an elevator. You're going up to the 30th floor, and at about the 21st floor, the elevator gets stuck. And there's somebody else in the elevator with you, and that person is terrified, claustrophobic, terrified of getting stuck in elevators, freaking out. You get word from the maintenance crew that they'll be there in just a couple minutes, but this person with you nonetheless is, is, is terrified. And so he turns to you and he says, I got to know, how can I be right with God? Do, do you know that? C- can you tell me how to be saved? Can you explain to me the heart of the gospel? Can you please do that? You've got two minutes a captive audience, what do you say? What do you say? Now that's a, a good exercise to, to think about, not just so that you might be prepared if something like that happens, it could, but I think the better reason to be prepared to answer that question <clears throat> has more to do with your own spiritual life because there are a lot of misunderstandings about what the heart of the gospel is, the very essence of the gospel. If you only have two minutes to explain the gospel to somebody, you want to get to the very essential, most crucial elements of that gospel. And one of the reasons it's important for us to understand that is because we will be profoundly disappointed in our spiritual lives if we expect the gospel to give something to us that it doesn't promise. A lot of Christians seem to get confused in this way and disillusioned in their faith because they expect certain things to be given to them and they don't get those things and they begin to doubt the gospel. For instance, they think, I thought when I came to believe in the gospel that I was going to be happy all the time. I thought the gospel promised me happiness. And then they find themselves unhappy and they think, what's wrong with the gospel? Or they think that the gospel promises to fix all their problems and eliminate all crises and trials in their lives. And then a crisis or a trial happens and they begin to wonder what's wrong with the gospel. Or they think the gospel is promised to give me health, wealth, and prosperity. And I'm still struggling to pay my bills and I've got these various illnesses. What's wrong with the gospel? A lot of people's faith is shipwrecked because they're expecting the gospel to give something that it never really promises. Well, here we are in Romans 3, 21 through 26, and in this little paragraph, we get to the heart of the gospel. I would say there is no other passage in all of Scripture that gets to the heart of the gospel better and clearer and more directly than this passage. If you want to be ready to answer a question in an elevator like the one I posed to you a moment ago, you could do no better then to commit this passage to memory and be able to explain it. This is 
a profoundly important passage. All parts of the Bible are essential. I said last week, however, that I think this might be the most important passage in the whole Bible. And if the Bible is the most important book ever written, that would suggest, as Leon Morris has said, that what we're about to read is the single most important paragraph ever written in human history. I'm about to read that to you. What a privilege it is, isn't it, that we can hear God's truth in this way. So let's stand, and we're going to read Romans 3, 21 through 26. Hear the Word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because... In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our God in heaven, we thank you for choosing us to be recipients of the truth of this passage. Now, by your spirit, lead us to truth and change our lives as we study the heart of of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's consider what is the heart of the gospel, and I'm going to explain that to you by answering three sub-questions to help us get uh, the the answer to this question. So, the, the first is this. What is it that the gospel offers? What is it that the gospel offers to you? What does it present to you to be received? Is the gospel, according to this passage, offering you happiness? Is it offering you health? Is it offering you wealth? Is it offering you prosperity? Is that what this passage is saying? Well, let's just look at verse 21 and see how it begins. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. A righteousness that is apart from our obedience to the law has now been revealed. It has been manifested. This is primarily and essentially what is being offered in the gospel, the righteousness of God. Now, you might respond to that and say, well, actually, that's a little bit disappointing because I'd rather have health, wealth, and prosperity. But I would suggest to you that according to the Word of God, what you need more than anything is not health, wealth, and prosperity, but the righteousness of God. Look what it says here in Proverbs 11. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. On judgment day, when your life comes to an end, your wealth and your prosperity will benefit you not a bit, but righteousness delivers from death. That's what you need. 
you need the righteousness of God. And this is what Paul has been doing in these first three chapters of the book of Romans. He is making the case so that you will understand your need for righteousness and you'll begin to long for it. You might remember back in chapter 1, when Paul first mentions the, uh, <clears throat> the righteousness of God, he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, this righteousness is revealed. And now here in chapter 3, verse 21, he's picking up this theme again of the righteousness of God. But in between chapter 1, 16 and 17, and chapter 3, verse 21, what Paul's been doing is presenting the problem in great, with great uh, bluntness. <laughs> And, and frankness, these last few sermons have been a little hard to hear, maybe. We've been hearing about the wrath of God, the reality of God's wrath. In chapter 1, Paul's made the case that this wrath of God is upon the Gentiles, the non-religious, that is, among us. Because of their unrighteousness, the wrath of God is upon them. That's what Paul said in chapter 1. Then he moved to chapter 2, and he said, well, it's not just the non-religious people upon whom the wrath of God is resting, it's actually resting upon religious people as well. And so in chapter 2 he says it's the Jew in their not necessarily unrighteousness but in their self-righteousness that the wrath of God is upon them. And so Paul has <clears throat> been hitting us with this bad news trying to get us to long for some good news. And he even sums it up here in verse 23 where he says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jews and Gentiles, religious and non-religious, theists and atheists, no matter what religion, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter what you believe, no matter whether you're in the church or out of the church, mankind, humankind, men, women, and children are all under the wrath of God. And so Paul's making this case so that you'll see this is what you need. More than health, more than wealth, more than prosperity, you need righteousness. And so Paul picks this up again, verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, how is that righteousness given? And it's given through this thing called justification. Now we're going to hear a lot of theological terms. This is such a dense passage. It's just packed full of one theological term after another. So we want to define these, make sure you understand them. Justification. Let's read the passage first of all, actually. It's verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. <clears throat> and then verse 24, and are justified. Very key word, key theological term for understanding the gospel. Here's justification. It's God's act of declaring the guilty not guilty and giving them His righteousness. Justification is an act of God. That's very important. It's God's act. You see, it's not your act. You don't justify yourself by what you do. It's something that God does outside of you. It's a declaration He makes about you that you're not guilty before God's law. And not only that, that His righteousness is then given to you. It's God's 
righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. That's justification. And that's the way his righteousness is given to us. And that's what's at the heart of the gospel. That's what's being offered to you. I don't know if that's what you want, but that's what you need, and that's what's being offered. By way of illustration, just to kind of make this clear, let's say you're a student in school and you've performed horribly in all of, your, all of your classes, you get to the end of the semester and you realize you've got all F's. An F in every single class is coming your way. And then your teacher says, well, I'm feeling merciful, how about if I just bump all your F's up to D's? Now what's your response to that? You're probably thankful, aren't you? I mean. D's are better than F's, D's aren't so good, but D's are better than F's. You're gonna pass your classes. You're not gonna to have to take them again. That's good news, but what this gospel is telling you is something much better than that. What, what this gospel is saying is that if you have F's in all of your classes, if, you, if your moral record is filled with F's, and that's what Paul's been telling us here over these last couple of chapters, that what God is offering you is all A's in every class. And the reason that he's offering you those A's is because the valedictorian of the class, the one who actually did earn all A's, was willing to take all of your F's on his record so that his A's could be given to you. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Who's the valedictorian in this illustration? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who gets all A's in terms of his moral performance. And what the gospel is saying is that his righteous, perfect, excellent performance in his obedience to God is being offered to you so that his performance becomes yours. That's what the gospel offers. Now, why would God do this? <clears throat> I mean, why would any valedictorian be willing to take F's and give you the I don't know any valedictorian ever who has been willing to do that. If you can point to me a story of that, I'd love to see it. It's probably never, ever happened. Ever. But the gospel is saying, no, on a much larger and more important scale, it has happened. Jesus' performance offered to you. Now, why would God do this? Well, let's look to verse 24. It says that we're justified by his grace as a gift, by his grace. There you get to one word. If there's got to be one word that gets to the heart of the gospel, that might be it. Probably is it. Grace. Grace is at the heart of the gospel, and it is the grace of God that motivates him to want to offer his righteousness to you. It's not because of anything you've done. It's not because he feels obligated to repay you. It's not because he owes you one. It's grace. Now, what is grace? Let's think about this. This is important to understand because it's easy to get grace confused with other terms. So, uh, another hypothetical situation here. Let's say you're at home and um, there's a homeless person who happens to be hanging around your house. And you decide to take compassion and mercy on this person and, and, and give him some food. What is that? Is that grace? I would say a better word for that 
is kindness. That's kindness, not really grace. It's kindness. Now, let's say that one day you come home and you find that your house has been ransacked. Your most valuable belongings have been stolen. Your TV and your computer has been hammered and destroyed and it's in pieces in these rooms and you find out that that homeless guy that you gave food to, he's the one who did that. He broke into your home, he ransacked the place and he stole your most beloved and expensive belongings. And then you have an opportunity to prosecute, to press charges against him. And you choose not to. Is that grace? I would say not quite. We're not quite to grace. What that is, that's mercy. That's I am not going to treat him as he deserves. He deserves to be prosecuted, but I'm not going to press charges. I'm having mercy on him. So let's imagine one more scenario. Let's say that after you've fed this homeless person and then in response he's come in and has ransacked your home and taken all your most precious belongings, you go to him and say, would you come over to my house because I want to provide for you the most bountiful, luscious, delicious feast that I've ever made. And I'm going to get the richest food, and I'm going to spend money and get the greatest drink, and we're going to sit down, and I'm going to feed you, and I'm going to bring you into my home and care for you. That's grace. See, mercy is not giving somebody what he deserves. Grace is when you give somebody way beyond what they deserve. And that's what Paul is talking about, this righteousness that is coming to us through grace. It's his grace that motivates him to do this. The big difference between Christianity and all other religions, every other religion, every other worldview is going to say this, you develop as best as you can your own righteousness and then present it to God at the end of your life and we'll see if it's acceptable. Every other religion has some form of that. Only Christianity says God has developed a righteousness of his own in the person of his son and is now offering it to you. It's not your righteousness offered to him, it's his righteousness offered to you. And the only question here for you this morning and that I would press upon you at this very moment is will you take it? Will you receive it? Do you see what he says after verse 23? By his grace as a gift. A gift. How do you benefit from a gift? You take it. You open up your hands and you receive it. That's what's offered to you in the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel, the righteousness of God offered to you. Will you take it? Second point to consider. What makes the gospel work? How is it that God can do this? It's his grace that motivates him. But what makes this actually work? For the righteousness of God to be offered to you, something has to happen. Because remember what we've been talking about these last couple of chapters, God's wrath, God's wrath. We've been hearing about that over and over again. God's wrath on the Jews, God's wrath on the Gentiles, God's angry at sin. So what happens to that wrath? That's the question. 
I mean, God's not just going to just wink and nod and to say, well, you know, I guess I'll just kind of let this go. That's, God can't do that. We wouldn't want God to do that. I mean, maybe you think you'd want God to do that, but I don't think you'd want God to do that. I don't think you'd want any judge to do that. Can you imagine Dylan Roof, you know, the guy who went into that South Carolina church and murdered all those African Americans? <clears throat> Can you imagine when he was brought before the judge, if the judge just said, you know what, I'm in a good mood today, Dylan, you're free to go. I I'm a judge of great mercy and compassion, so I don't want to be too hard on you. You're free. Everybody would scream, that is an injustice. That is an outrage. That's a miscarriage of justice. And rightfully so, it is an injustice. No judge worthy of his name and title would do such a thing. And God is the same way. God is a God of justice. God wants justice to be done. And we see here in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've been seeing these last couple of chapters, the wrath of God upon all of us. His Holiness has been impinged, and justice must be served. So th this is kind of a problem in a sense. What's God going to do here? He, he's offering righteousness, but then he's got this side of him that is wrathful towards sin. And in fact, if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see passages like this, Proverbs 17. He who justifies the wicked and then condemns the righteous, those are an abomination to the Lord justifying the wicked, someone who's committed wickedness and just saying, <clears throat> you know, you're okay, never mind, um, you're free to go. That, that's an abomination. God wants justice to be served. Here's another example, Exodus 23, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. That this is not the way God works. He doesn't just give a pass to those who are guilty of sin. So what's he going to do? He wants to offer this righteousness, and yet his wrath must be satisfied. The solution, the way this works, what makes this work is Jesus. Jesus makes it work. And there's a couple other theological words here that we need to understand. In verse 24, do you see this? <clears throat> verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus has offered redemption. He's accomplished redemption. Redemption is a price paid to free someone from captivity. That's what redemption is. In the Old Testament, you'll see examples of slaves, for instance, that are freed when someone comes along with some money and purchases them out of freedom. Or Israel, for instance, was in captivity in Egypt. And we know the story. They were liberated from bondage. And in Exodus 15, it says God redeemed them. The word redemption is used to describe the liberation of God's people from Egypt. So this is what Jesus has done. The, 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 the payment, however, is not money, but, but his blood. We'll see more about that in a second. But this is what verse 24 is saying. Here's one of the ways that God has made this work. Jesus has redeemed us. But the other word that is more essential, more important, maybe one you've never heard before, but I want to explain this to you. It's very, very important. It's the word propitiation. Now, I doubt that any of you woke up this morning and said, thank God that my sins have been propitiated. You probably didn't wake up this morning thinking that, but I hope you wake up tomorrow morning saying that. 
It would be an entirely appropriate thing to say. Here's verse 25. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, what does this word mean? <clears throat> if you have a, um, a, an NIV, actually, your translation doesn't even say propitiation. I'm not sure why that is, but the ESV, New American Standard, uses that term. Um, I think it's a shame if your translation doesn't include that term because it's so essential. Because propitiation is not just a passing over of sins. It's not just God overlooking sins. Propitiation is an act of appeasing or turning away the wrath of God. And now here we find in this one verse, in verse 25, all this tension has been building up from chapter 1, chapter 2, and through part of chapter 3, the wrath of God against Jews and Gentiles, religious and non-religious, and that finds its final culmination in this wonderful word in verse 25. Here's what God did. He propitiated His wrath. He turned it away. And the way He did it is through the blood of of His Son, Jesus Christ. That when Jesus died on the cross and shed His blood, it wasn't through Jesus' miracles, it wasn't through His compassion to the poor, it wasn't through His teaching, it wasn't through anything He did in His earthly ministry, it's the blood that He shed on the cross. That's what satisfied God's wrath. That's what satisfied His quenching, for His searching for justice. That's why the cross is just such a big deal. That's why we talk about it so much. There is no salvation. There is no gospel apart from the cross. If you don't hear a lot about the cross, you're not hearing the heart of the gospel. You might be hearing lots of religious things and spiritual things, but you're not getting to the heart of the gospel until you get to what Jesus has done, hanging there on Calvary, dying a brutal death, and bleeding real blood out of his body. And when the Father saw that blood, He said, that is sufficient for my wrath to be satisfied. That's what propitiation is. And that's what Jesus did. And that's at the very heart of the gospel. And there's no better news that you could ever hear than that. I've heard people say, you know, if you don't think the gospel is the best news you've ever heard, you haven't understood it. And so if you're sitting there thinking, Big deal. I've heard all this before. He says this every week. If that's what you're thinking, I'm just telling you, you, you don't get it. You're not getting it. You, you, just, you, you don't understand how serious it is to be under the wrath of God. You don't understand what a glorious thing it is to know that someone else took care of that for you. And that you're going to be free from ever having to face God's anger against you. That's why we sing and let us love and sing and wonder. We're going to sing it here in a moment. Let us wonder. Grace and justice, they join and they point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Justice has nothing more to ask of you when your faith is in Christ because of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice. The problem is solved. How is it that God can acquit the guilty? Well, he goes on and he says this in verse 25. It was to show God's righteousness. This whole 
thing. You know, do you see how this is mostly about God, not about us? <laughs> Why did God send his son to redeem us and to propitiate his wrath? It's to show God to be righteous, holy, perfect in all of his ways so that no accusation can be brought against him for the way he has done things in this world and in our lives. This shows God's righteousness. And then verse 26, he repeats it. <laughs> it was to show his, well, excuse me, back to 25, I missed that kind of odd phrase. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. What does that mean? Um, <clears throat> I think what that means is that Old Testament saints who had sinned against God, those sins God passed over in his forbearance, which is a little different than saying that those sins were fully and completely forgiven, because that's not really what happened. God, over, God overlooked those sins. He passed over those. He, he kind of deferred payment on those sins, knowing that when the time had fully come, he would send his son Jesus to pay the full penalty for them. But the saints in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to this promise of a coming Messiah who would uh, propitiate God's wrath on their behalf. We look back to Jesus who came. They looked forward to the Messiah who was to come. So until Jesus came, God passed over in his forbearance their sins, knowing that they would be fully paid for when Jesus came. I think that's what that passage means. Um, but the problem is solved. And in verse 26, all of this is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. His justice is upheld. His righteousness is upheld. But he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can offer his righteousness to you with his justice being upheld. It's just, it's a brilliant plan. <laughs> it's really amazing the way God has worked it out to uphold his attributes, and also to show mercy to sinners like us. Practically speaking, you know, some of you might be <clears throat> worried that in your life God is kind of paying you back for sins. I think this is a very common experience of a lot of Christians. You know, you think back to things you've done in the past, and, and you have certain problems or difficulties in your life now, or maybe things aren't working for you in your life, and you've got dreams that are not coming out, and various disappointments, and you're thinking to yourself, God's paying me back for these sins that I committed, for those lies that I told, for that friendship that I ruined, for my child that I neglected, for the abuse that I exerted on my kids or my wife, for that abortion that I had. And you think that the bad things that are happening to you now are God's way of paying you back. That's what I tell you. If you're a Christian, that's not what, that's not what is happening. God has already paid for those sins. He has already satisfied his justice for those sins. He's already satisfied his anger and his wrath for those sins. It happened 2,000 years ago. It's done. Now, if you're not a Christian, God is angry at your sins. If you're not a Christian, God is angry with you. You are a rightful recipient of the wrath of God if you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, friends, don't let the devil come and bring to you this accusation that God is somehow trying to make your life hard because of past sins, because it's not true. That's a lie. 
because of what we learn here in verse 25, the propitiation of God's wrath. One last thing. How finally is this gospel received? How do we benefit from this? Everything that I've been telling you is something that God has been doing, offering His righteousness, sending His Son to redeem, to propitiate. But how do you benefit from it? How is it received? And the answer very clearly is by faith. It's repeated three times in this passage. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith, simple faith. Faith in whom, though? That's an important question to ask. You know, you hear people talk a lot of times, you got to have faith. After basketball games, you know, you get these athletes that are interviewed and they try to explain about how they won. It's like, well, we just, we just had faith. We never gave up faith. We never stopped believing, they say. And I always want to ask, believe in what? Who, who did you believe in? What did you believe in? In what was your faith? I mean, that seems to be a very important question to ask if this believing worked for you. What did you believe in? And what is the gospel? At the heart of the gospel, what are you being called to put your faith in? Are are you called to put your faith in yourself? I mean, that's the secular gospel. You hear that all the time. Believe in yourself. Have faith in yourself. Everything will be okay if you believe in yourself. That's not what the Christian gospel says. Is it a call just to believe in God? Have faith in God? Just have faith in God. Is that the call here? No. (laughs) There's lots of people who have faith in God, a lot of people who believe in God to to some degree or not. That's not what Paul is saying here. Is it even to have faith in just Jesus? I would say Paul's even more specific than that. It's not just faith in Jesus. Because this question of who you're putting your faith in has everything to do with the Jesus that you have in your mind. Are you putting faith in Jesus as just a great moral leader, just a great teacher? You're putting your faith in the fact that he's going to teach you so that you know how to obey him and then you can be saved? Is that the Jesus you're putting your faith in? That's not the Jesus that Paul has in mind here. Verse 25, again, he put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's faith in a crucified Savior, a crucified Jesus, a bleeding Jesus on the cross. That's the object of the faith that Paul is talking about here. The blood received by faith. That's how you receive the gospel. Now, now let me think a little bit about faith. You might be asking this question, what is, what is faith? What does that look like? What does that feel like? So many Christians get confused on this matter. They confuse what faith is. Friends, faith is not a feeling. Faith is not some kind of an inner strength that you're bringing to the situation. Faith is not your contribution to your salvation. It's not as if God is going to send Jesus and then you contribute your faith and you got like a 50-50 thing going on and, and you shake hands. It's a deal, God. You gave your son, I give my faith. 50-50, we're joining together in this salvation project. That's not faith either. Faith is not meritorious. It's not a work. It's not a contribution. Faith is simply a means of receiving. 
It's the eye that looks to him. It's the hand that receives the gift. It's the mouth that drinks the, the rivers of living water. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is probably the best description of Christian faith. I'm not bringing anything to get your attention, God. I'm just clinging with open arms to your cross, the blood shed on Calvary in Jesus Christ. That's faith. And so many Christians get mixed up because they focus more on the faith than they focus on Jesus. It's very easy to do. You start looking at your faith and you start thinking, is my faith strong enough for me to be saved? What about the doubts that I have that are kind of mixed in with my faith? Or how come the faith that I exercised years ago when I became a Christian doesn't feel the same way today as it did then? How come I don't have this kind of feeling that I used to have? And what if my faith isn't quite as sincere as others' faith or as sincere as I think it ought to be? Maybe I'm not saved because my faith isn't good enough. My faith isn't strong enough. My faith isn't sincere enough. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever asked that? Friends, here's the good news at the heart of the gospel. Here's what saves you. It's not your faith. Your faith doesn't save you. The object of your faith saves you. And if that object is Jesus, then he is strong enough to save you even though your faith is weak. You're not saved by faith. (laughs) Hear me, what I'm saying here. Very careful distinctions need to be made here. We're called to exercise faith, but the faith itself is not what saves us. Here's what John Murray says. It's not faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. Do, Do you see the difference? Do you see that distinction? I know it seems like a convoluted sentence, but it's profound. It's not your faith that's saving you. It's the Christ that you're believing in who is saving you. John Stott, same thing. The value of faith is not to be found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object, namely Jesus Christ. But notice he doesn't stop there. And him crucified. That has to be the object of your faith if you're going to get the heart of the gospel and be a Christian. What encouraging news this is. This is so liberating for me that I don't have to like muster up some degree of faith in order to get God to save me. This is the heart of the gospel. It's not a great faith. It's a great Savior. It's a great Savior who saves people with little faith. Corey Ten Boom. Some of you know she wrote the book The Hiding Place. And... Um, she was a Dutch Christian whose family hid Jews from Nazis during World War II. And uh, <clears throat> Corey and her sister Betsy were put in prison. Her sister died there in prison. Corey actually survived and was released and was able to write this book, The Hiding Place. But she sums up this concept really well, and I hope this is helpful to you. <clears throat> she says, Um, that people sometimes say to her, she says, people say, I'm sure it was your faith that carried you through that experience um, in that prison. And she says this, my faith? I don't know about that. My faith was so weak, so unstable, it was hard to have faith. When a person is in a safe environment, 
having faith is easier. But in that camp, when I saw my own sister and thousands of others starve to death, where I was surrounded by men and women who had training in cruelty, then I do not think it was my faith that helped me through. No, it was Jesus. He who said, I am with you until the end of the world. It was his eternal arms that carried me through. He was my certainty. If I tell you that it was my faith, you might say, if you have to go through suffering, I don't have Corey Ten Boom's faith. But if I tell you it was Jesus, then you can trust that he who helped me will do the same for you. What a great assurance this is. What a great passage this is. This is the heart of the gospel, friends. Righteousness offered to you. Everything you need to be accepted by God. Because, not of what you did, but because of Jesus, redemption, and propitiation. And now the invitation to you is will you receive it? Bring your small, feeble faith. Open up your hands and receive. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank and praise you as a gracious and kind God the one who is just and the justifier of whomever has faith in Jesus. Thank you for telling us this news and writing it for us in your word. Would you enable us tomorrow morning to rejoice that your wrath has been propitiated on our behalf. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.